from PRX. Support for Studio 360 comes from Babbel, a language app that teaches real-life conversations in a new language, like Spanish, French, or German. Babbel's 10 to 15-minute lessons are available in the App Store or online at babbel, dot com. This is Studio 360. I'm Kurt Anderson. And I'm sitting on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial. This first level of garden. This is Thomas Jefferson's vegetable garden. I like to have the roasted chicken paste. Very well done. Editing is all about timing. I try to get a little bit away from the actual subject. You must get sick of your own voice, right? Studio 360. With As a New Yorker, with all the artists and all the hundreds of galleries and museums, I tend to take visual art somewhat for granted. But the obvious cosmopolitan coastal hub cities aren't the only American places where art lives and matters. Good and occasionally great art gets made and adored everywhere. In places, for instance, like Northeast Ohio. Starting this month in and around Cleveland, the Front International Triennial for Contemporary Art is happening. It's a vast show in 28 venues featuring new work by more than 100 artists invited from all over America and the world. It runs until the end of September. As a fan of new art and living artists, as well as a transplanted Midwesterner, I took a rooting interest in Front the moment I heard about it and went to Cleveland to check it out as the organizers and artists were rushing toward the opening. I start downtown with the guy who dreamed it all up. He's a retired advertising executive and art collector named Fred Bidwell. Welcome to Cleveland. Thank you. Now, here we are. We're not just by chance here uh, in the middle of downtown near Playhouse Square. We're next to this uh, uh, wall, 12-story wall of this building that's been painted white. Uh, that is one of your venues. What's going on here? Yeah, well, in front of this wall is an enormous uh, bucket truck uh, that can extend all the way up to the top. Uh, and that's going to contain a painter starting next week who's going to recreate a lost masterpiece by the op art founder, uh, Julian Stanzak. Now, op art, short for optical art, was a movement that had its big moment starting in the 1960s. The paintings are abstract, graphic, geometric, often with super bright, day-glowish colors, trippy but rigorous. And the canvases seem electric, like they throb. And in the early 1970s, an internationally acclaimed op artist named Julian Stanzek happened to live in Cleveland, and he was commissioned by the city to paint a gigantic mural downtown, which, like a lot of American downtowns at the time, was emptying out. Julian's painting covered the side of a building, this dense 12-story grid of blue and green rectangles and red lines that looked op art, like a field of vibrating pinks and purples. The mural was worn away by weather after just a few years. For this fresh replica of the mural that's going up in the exact same place in Playhouse Square, the front organizers specified new, improved 21st century paint that should last longer. It's an incredible wall, huge. Uh, And of course, the painting is this stunning, vibrating, op art, uh, a riot of color. Um, 
that's just going to sort of be a bit mind-blowing at this scale. Yeah. Julian, alas, uh, died not long ago, but uh, oversaw the beginnings of this project, and his widow, uh, Barbara Stancic, is here up the hill. Uh, let's go find her and talk to her. All right, great. It's coming together. Hi, I'm Hi. Kurt. Hi, Kurt. Good to meet Good you. My name. <laughs> Barbara Stanzak is an artist as well, a sculptor, and she's been overseeing the project the last year in her late husband's absence. So this was done almost 50 years ago. Do you remember when it was 1973, painted? 72, 73, yeah. that uh, fall. Yeah. Uh-huh. And he really uh, became very prominent in in the kind of work he did in the in the 1960s mm-hmm. and early 70s, which was called Op Art, short for mm-hmm. Optical Art. Your late husband had such an extraordinary life, like a work of fiction, mm-hmm. of uh, growing up in Poland during World War II and escaping uh, to Tehran and going to Uganda and being in a camp and, 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 and making his way here and becoming an artist eventually. It's interesting, given the the, the, the narrative color of his life, it mm-hmm. never made its way into his work, right? Uh, not the narrative. He yeah. ran away from remembering the atrocities that he had gone through. So abstraction can open up a different passageway, a different viewpoint on the world. He did want to share color, probably his Africa experience, being seven years in a camp in Africa, and the lusciousness of nature around where the greatest intuition all his life. He did love nature, but he wanted not to uh, copy it, but to transform it and to parallel the potency of color for others uh, in order to be able to share it. Julian emigrated to America in the 1950s to Ohio, where he got a job teaching art and met Barbara. A decade later, he was successful, showing in New York City and all over the world. But he stayed in Cleveland, Barbara says, as a very conscious choice. We needed peace. Julian needed respite. He needed to withdraw from action. Uh, we live in a community where nobody knows who we are or what we do. They might think, painter, okay, it's a... Sign it's, painter. It's, it's yeah. a sign painter or yeah. wall painter in houses. We, we, are, we like to be inconspicuous. So we can focus on the work. The work is the importance and also the human relations uh, to have a good family, to take care of the parents, etc., etc. By the way, for listeners who don't know where we are in Cleveland and don't know downtown Cleveland, this is about as prominent a place as you can get here on Playhouse Square Mm -hmm. and everything else. I mean, lots and lots and lots of people are going to see this for the next at least five years. Hopefully more. <laughs> Julian's gift to the city. Well, the first one was the city's gift to Julian. So now Julian is giving back. <laughs> From the downtown district, I head west to a little neighborhood called Hingetown. It is freshly gentrified and so new, I discovered, that lots of lifelong Clevelanders haven't even heard of it yet. A few blocks of old industrial spaces repurposed as pour-over coffee shops, a vegan sandwich spot, a boxing gym. And at Hingetown Center is another beautiful remnant of old Cleveland, a brick electrical power substation built in the 1920s. Fred Bidwell and his wife Laura 
bought and expanded it and turned it into a public art space. They call it Transformer Station, and I head up to the library area on the mezzanine, which is this cool concrete and brick spot that looks out over the rest of the gallery, to talk again with Fred, as well as his curator for the front triennial, Michelle Grabner. Um, front and American City. Explain both of those things. An American City is the um, title of this inaugural edition. Um, so Front International Cleveland Triennial for Contemporary Arts, our full, lengthy full name. I kept on thinking of these words like frontier, upfront, you know, forefront, confront. And I thought, wow, you know, Front does it. Front really expresses the idea that, you know, we're always on the leading edge. Yeah. And in American City, there's something kind of generic about that. Is that deliberate? Often when we think about um, uh, cities, we think about those big coastal influencers, whether they're New- whether it's New York or Los Angeles. And the idea of saying an American city uh, with its um, maybe slight modesty, really thinking about those cities in the American interior and how they offer um, and support culture. Right. Uh, Cleveland doesn't have an especially... Uh, strong artistic cosmopolitan reputation. I mean, um, uh, is that part of the attraction for you guys of doing this here? Like, it's it's virgin territory in a kind of international artistic sense? People don't think of Cleveland as sort of a big artistic hub, but ironically, actually it has extraordinary resources. Because it was one of the richest cities in the country in the teens and 20s, uh, and all, in the 18, early 1800s. Yeah, yeah, yeah. As all of these institutions were created and endowed by these industrial giants. So Cleveland Museum of Art, the Akron Art Museum, the Allen Memorial Art Museum. You know, these are extraordinary institutions with incredible collections, amazing facilities. Uh, so one of the ideas behind Front is let's pull all of these incredible resources together Uh, seven institutions as full collaborators in Northeast Ohio and create so much critical mass that people can't fly over. They've got to land and see it. You know, road trips are really important and not a lot of people take road trips anymore. My students in Chicago, they fly to New York. They don't take a road trip to New York. And, um, you know, if they would have, they would have stopped in Cleveland and understand again the the richness of uh, the institutions here. Um, As I did back in the 80s as a student, we would stop in front of the Cleveland Museum of art and we would look at the collection. Right. Yeah, we hope to trick a lot of people into seeing contemporary art this summer um, because people are just going to bump into it uh, and hopefully it'll raise a few questions and generate curiosity for more. One of the art pieces you could just bump into is a sculpture by A.K. Burns who lives in New York City and created this work just for front. Her medium is chain-link fencing, but instead of standing up straight like fences, these eight-foot pieces are aggressively warped and twisted into hunched and leaning forms. And then this is going to be the bottom. It's tipped up. I find AK just as the sculptures are being installed, and in the shade of a big tree, they appear to be painted glossy black. Well, so it's not exactly painted black. It's actually painted with a chameleon car finish. Uh, so when the light hits it, we're not seeing it very active. Right I get now what you're saying. No, it's beautifully, gorgeously shiny. Yeah, so it's going to um, oscillate between a 
deep purple and a green when the light hits it. And part of that is just sort of the optical effect that I wanted um, as you maneuver or like uh, circulate the object. AK tells me that the idea for the fencing started out as a response to the gentrification of this formerly gritty neighborhood, Hingetown, where construction fencing is ubiquitous. But for her, the meaning goes way beyond that literal illusion. Working with the fencing, um, for me, has to do with, um, you know, borders, divisions. Uh, It stems just even personally from my own body and the ways that I think about gender. For example, I'm masculine performing, but female identified. Uh (laughs) And and that's very intentional because I'm not interested in actually... um, Aligning with a gender that makes me comfortable because I'm interested in complicating how the borders of sure. how things, okay. how the body is policed in different ways. I get that. Policed all the way out to sort of larger political ramifications. Uh-huh. Um, so while this did stem from kind of thinking about the gentrification in this neighborhood, for me it's, it should hold the symbolic weight of, I think, that extends beyond that, uh-huh. right? Um, I actually wanted these to be kind of beautiful in the end, to kind of make it dysfunctional and then thereby make it beautiful is actually kind of an act in undoing its right. its uh, original agenda. Um, and they're called the dispossessed. I just like that word, like the not possessed, to not possess. Uh-huh. What was your sense of and feeling about this idea of, of Cleveland uh, trying to be creating this triennial and becoming this center of contemporary art? I am a city dweller because that's where I've chosen to make my career, but I, I have spent a considerable amount of my life like not being a city person, actually in the midst of moving upstate. <laughs> so you're, you're telling me you're not a fancy urban snob, and so oh, Cleveland's I, just I don't fine wanna under, I don't want to understate that, but <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I'm a big fan of the road trip. <laughs> uh-huh. I don't know. I mean, I think the quote-unquote second city, it's... This idea that art doesn't exist in other places or you only you can only be in New York to make art, I just, I, I don't know. It's not something I buy into. I mean, I bought into it enough to go there and realize that I needed to get my footing right. in New York, but I don't see it as right. the primary source of creativity. And certainly not now. I mean, part of why I'm moving upstate is I can't afford to stay in New York right. City. And I think most artists are feeling that way. So I think we're only going to see more second city, quote-unquote, emergence of, like, you know, really productive creativity happening in other places. And with you, light out for the territories. Yeah. Yeah. Next, I head down the street to a gallery and art incubator called Spaces, where I meet up with two artists behind a citywide participatory art project called A Color Removed. Their idea is to cull orange items, clothing, toys, furniture, appliances, garbage, really orange anything and everything from all over Cleveland. Because Tamir Rice, the 12-year-old Cleveland boy killed by police in 2015, he had been holding a toy gun that lacked the requisite orange plug in its barrel. A witness who called the police said that the boy was pointing a pistol that was, quote, probably fake and scaring people. Police say the officer fired two shots after the boy pulled the fake weapon from his waistband. R.A. Washington is a local writer, publisher, bookstore owner 
who is collaborating on this project with an artist from Chicago named Michael Rakowitz. For me, like, getting involved with Michael wasn't necessarily because I felt like Tamir's story was an African-American one. I think Tamir's story is an American story, and it's, um, it's America's responsibility to make sure that black children don't get murdered by the police. Um, and that is what the project will, will ultimately do. Um, we'll give a place for people to talk about an uncomfortable thing. Um, and also to really just highlight Miss Rice and in the work that she's continuing to do. Um, for Tamir's chi- mother. Yeah, Tamir's mother for, for children in Cleveland. Like she's taking a tragedy, something that no one could ever imagine happened to them. And she's empowering herself and empowering others to protect kids. Um, so to me, it's not necessarily preaching to the choirs. It's about hope. I was watching along with many other people around the country as uh, Tamir Rice was murdered. This is Michael Rakowitz. And in the police debrief afterwards, I found it interesting and also infuriating the kind of uh, victim blaming that went on when they said that um, uh, they could not tell that it was a toy gun because its orange tip had been removed. Tamir had gotten the gun from a friend who told investigators that he had removed the orange tip, the safety tip that the gun had come with. And we have uh, the model that had been purchased at a local Walmart. And you'll see that as purchased, this airsoft pistol should have had that orange safety tip to hopefully alert officers that this in fact was a toy. But the pistol that Tamir had that day had no such tip. And so I started to think, what would it mean then if this boy could not live with safety because of the lack of orange uh, on his toy gun? What would it mean to redact orange throughout a city like Cleveland? So, so it's a normal gallery space, painted white. What, what will happen in there to invite people to place orange things? Well, it'll happen inside and also outside the gallery. I mean, throughout the city, I think we're locating um, about uh, between a dozen and 15 spaces, uh, public and also within businesses where drop boxes will be placed. And the drop boxes will have text on them describing exactly what they are and why they're there and, um, and serve as a place where people can bring their objects and then we'll collect from there um, frequently and then you know, collect them, I mean, put them on the, on the wall and on shelves that will be uh, between the columns that are in the, the back room of spaces. So part of your work will be to figure out where and how to place things. Exactly, exactly. But it'll, like I said, it'll be a very live thing where throughout the duration of the projects run during front, um, from July 15th until September 30th, somebody could just arrive, you know, from, uh, from Frankfurt you know, and bring an orange object or uh, from wherever. Yeah. yeah. Orange puma. And, and, uh, yeah, orange soccer puma. Yeah. Well, I thought you meant a living animal. That would be interesting, too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and I appreciate and applaud Michael for being able to stick in there with a community that was in grief that doesn't get hurt often, that was taking it personal. And they should have. And... Um, and having really difficult conversations with him about, well, why do you want to do this? And um, he stuck in there and had the conversations. 
And this wonderful piece with a lot of great collaborators is going to take place now where, you know, maybe it would have just been him doing some work. You know, now it's like six of us. And um, that's pretty awesome. I head five minutes down the road to the West Side Market. It opened in 1912 for sellers of all kinds of produce and meats, which it still does a century later. It's lunchtime and busy when I meet up with my next guide, Laura DeMarco, who is a lifelong Clevelander and an arts reporter for the Cleveland Plain Dealer. Whenever I have visitors from out of town, this is always on the, the first stop. Um, I recently brought someone from Berlin here, actually, and she was amazed by it. She said, this, this is better than anything we have oh, in Berlin. This is real. No, this is beautiful. It's like a, like, you know, Grand Central Station, yeah, practically. It does look like a train station. And, and with that shiny subway tile of a kind mm-hmm. that now every fancy interior yeah. decorator in America right. uh, specifies. Yeah, that's uh, a gorgeous it's market. gorgeous. With a beautiful terracotta tile uh, uh, arched uh, roof as well. Yeah. Wow. Um, as you can see, there's uh, meat. You're going to see a lot of uh, carcasses as you walk around. Uh, very authentic. Wow. Uh, any kind of sausage, you know, as you could. I would. I would buy. Kind of I would live in an apartment near here just to be near here. You know. But bakers, meat. This oh, so is. So much great, this great is, baked goods. Yeah. And clearly, like a thriving set yeah. of businesses. Yeah, you can. You know, as you saw the parking lot, you can hardly get in here on yeah. a Friday. Yeah, it's great. I also, I mean, I'm, I'm astounded it didn't get torn down sometimes. Yes. I'm astounded it, it has been in continuous use as this all yeah. this time. It's remarkable. I mean, I, I actually uh, wrote a book that came out last year called Lost Cleveland. It's about 65 sadly lost landmarks for Cleveland. And um, we lost so much because we, we, we did have a great rise and fall. We were a big city. We were the fifth largest city at one point, a very wealthy city because of John D. Rockefeller and industry and so on. So we had all this huge infrastructure and then in the 60s Cleveland's population plummeted there was such a loss of jobs and so many things were to- were torn down um, the West Side Market I mean fortunately people had to keep eating maybe that was the reason why it, it, it preserved how are you doing today thank you how are you pick any one you like which one you like pick it out thank you have a great day of course I'm not at the West Side Market just for the history and the hurly burly The market's also acting as a kind of gallery space for another front artist whom I meet outside. I'm John Ripinoff. I'm an artist from Milwaukee, and I'm participating in front as a resident artist. So for the last year or so, I've been making sort of frequent visits to Cleveland from Milwaukee and other places that I've been traveling. And um, and for 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 the triennial... I designed a, a new sausage, kind of based on some of the research I've been doing here in Cleveland. And um, I'm building um, tandoor ovens in a few public spaces to kind of engage different communities and also to create hearths for people to kind of come together and connect over food. The research John did was at community meetings and in galleries and studios and local urban farms around Cleveland. And the art that he's created is a sausage that he calls the Cleveland Curry Koji Wurst. It mixes flavors of old immigrant Cleveland, paprika and coriander, with some from new immigrant Cleveland, cumin and ginger and saffron. John trained as an artist in conventional media, pencil, paint, clay, 
But living in Milwaukee, he says, led him to redefine what an art practice could be. It's a small city. It's a it's similar scale as, as Cleveland, similar uh, history with the rise and fall of I- industry. Um, but uh, through that, I was kind of forced to collaborate with non-artist identified um, ideators and business people in Milwaukee. And, and through that, it was a natural trajectory for me. I still work in sculpture and painting and other art forms, but to start working with um, food as a medium. And so this special front triennial sausage you've made and are making will be that this is where you'll be this presenting is where, that? Yep, it'll be like This is your gallery? Yeah, this <laughs> is this is my this is my host venue and yeah. um, visitors will be invited to either, you know, you can buy a, a cooked sausage off the menu and I'll invite you guys to come taste a little bit of our one of our prototypes. Uh-huh. And but you can also buy packages of it to take home and barbecue maybe grill on one of the tandoor ovens in the community or maybe just grill on your yeah. uh, backyard grill. What about when just somebody shows up and says, yeah, I'll take one of those, and, and he goes or she goes, well, it's art, what? To me, that that's the biggest gift I can give to Correct. civilization is to, is to change the way that people think about... Um, so it's not this thing that puts you off and you have to be have an MFA and be an elitist to get. Exactly, and if you are an MFA or uh, art historian, you're gonna, I think you're going to love the sausage too. <laughs> okay. John invites Laura DeMarco and me into the West Side Market Cafe, which is this great little old-fashioned restaurant that's been there, I guess, forever, tucked into a corner of the market building. He wants us to try his Cleveland curry koji wurst. Okay, let me set you up. But before we chow down, I asked Laura what she thought of Front and its dream of nudging Cleveland toward becoming a contemporary art hub. I thought it was great. I I thought it was very um, audacious and ambitious, but I thought that it was something that Cleveland um, could could use, would do well here, and that it it fits the city. I mean, we are, you know, a mid-sized city at this point. We are a city with a rich um, arts culture and history, and we're a city where, as we mentioned earlier, more younger people are moving back, and it just seems like the time is right for something like this. I'm, I'm excited for you. Oh, thanks. Well, yeah, we are Cleveland. We are excited in Cleveland, yes. Um, and should we eat some of John's art? May we eat yep. some of John's yes, art? Yes, we're ready. Yep, the sausage is hot and ready. The Front International Cleveland Triennial for Contemporary Art is happening until September 30th. Big thanks to Studio 360's Lauren Hansen, who came with me to Cleveland, and to Justin Glansville for his production help there. To find out more and to see some photos of my visit and some of the works I saw, go to studio360.org. Coming up, when your job is to watch the same movie over and over and over again. We got in all of the Friday the 13th movies in a row. So I watched the first one, and then I watched the second one, and the third one, and the fourth one, and each time I was watching it three or four times, and I was watching all the special features. The crucial, and to my mind, horrific job of being a mastering quality control technician. I hate, it made me feel sick watching it towards the end. Literally, it made my body feel bad when I knew I had to watch it. That's next on Studio 360. When a movie finishes shooting, the jobs for a lot of the crew are just beginning. 
like the editors and the Foley recording artists and sound mixers and color graders and all the rest. With so many separate collaborators along the way, it means that little mistakes can get made. Glitches in the picture or in the audio or continuity. So before they send any new movie out to theaters or release a remastered version of some old TV show, producers want to make sure that the final cut is absolutely perfect. And the only way to do that is to have somebody watch it. And watch it again. And again. I watched Transformers 2 at least 15 times. You picked the wrong planet. You picked the wrong planet. Star Trek. I'd watched every episode multiple times in multiple languages. Casey Trela is a musician in Los Angeles, but his day job is being a mastering quality control technician. Every day I get up and I drive to a little office park in Burbank and I watch TV and movies, and I look for mistakes in them for 8 to 10 hours a day. As part of our series on day jobs, Casey told us about his two very different occupations. My boss described the way to focus on what we're watching as you're looking at a window, and you're trying to find errors in the window while other stuff is happening behind it. You're trying to find things that are, like, getting in the way of you being able to take in what's happening in the story. So your focus is a little bit more scanning around the screen, looking at edges of frames and looking places where maybe you normally wouldn't. Little blips that just pop up for one frame, like a black dot or a white dot or pink or something that'll just flash up there. Then there's production issues, which I think are my favorite. Those are when a boom mic drops into a shot or you look in someone's sunglasses and you can see the cameraman. Anything where you can like see the production actually happening a little bit. When we get movies in, I have to watch them multiple times because we'll find errors the first pass. And then there's also just multiple versions of movies where there'll be different edits and they'll be going to different countries and they'll want different things in each one. So I'm just watching the same content with slight variations over and over and over and over again. If you watch something more than once and you know what to expect already, there's a sort of specific fatigue that sets in where you're dreading knowing what happens and you just want to get to the end of it. It's like if you imagine going to the movies and seeing a movie that was fine, like it was okay, but you leave and you're like, I don't need to see that movie again. But then if you were forced to watch it 10 more times, how awful it would feel. (laughs) So one example, we got in all of the Friday the 13th movies in a row. So I watched the first one. Killer mommy. Killer. Killer mommy. And then I watched the second one. And the third one, and the fourth one. And each time I was watching it three or four times, and I was watching all the special features. I hate, it made me feel sick watching it towards the end. Literally, it made my body 
feel bad when I knew I had to watch it. By the end, it's just ingrained in your brain all the elements of this movie. And I was watching them with two of my friends who worked there that moved out here uh, from North Carolina with me. And we were watching them and going crazy together. And we decided to start this band called Happy Campers in 3D. And our music is based around diving maybe too deeply into the world of the Friday the 13th movie series. For example, I wrote a song called Hot Chili that's about this character in the third movie whose name is Chili. Oh my god, Shelly is dead. He cried wolf and got eaten by it. Uh, and she gets killed with a hot poker that Jason takes out of the fire. And the song alludes to it by saying that he gave her heartburn. He took the poker from the fire and he gave me heartburn. Which I felt really proud of. That uh, stupid joke. Oh, oh, now I am dead. I have a band called Tuft with two of my friends that I don't watch movies with. came out with our first album and now we're recording new music and it's always it always feels like we're on the border of doing it full time one one story that kind of relates to work i guess i had a song get placed in a tv show uh californication and uh, I got really excited and I was like, oh, I can finally like quit my job because this job has come in. And then we actually ended up getting that show, Californication, at work. So I was just watching each episode of the show at work, hoping that I would hear myself. Moment between us where everything will be okay again. Almost like fast forwarding to the end of each one. I have got like, like we're just talking to see if the song was in there. And... I never heard myself, so I just sort of put it out of my mind. Like, they must have cut it out. I found out later that they did use it, and it was at the end of this episode. It kind of feels like the end of something. Makes you wonder. That was the one episode of the season that I hadn't watched at work. She was the only thing that was still keeping us together which turned out to be a good thing because even though it was like a really cool opportunity and did really help me, uh, it wasn't something that I could have like quit my job over. And if I had quit in the Jerry Maguire style way, uh, I probably would have really screwed up my life. Under my feet, babe, grass is growing, yeah. That's Casey Trela playing a cover of the Tom Petty song, Time to Move On. Casey's band is called Tuft, and you can check out their most recent album, Look, Look, at tuftmusic.com. Our story was produced by Tommy Bazarian. 
So are you an artist or a writer or performer who, to pay the bills, does something unusual or just interestingly unlike what you do pursuing your creative passion? Or maybe you know somebody who fits the bill. Maybe that person is sleeping on your couch a lot. If so, give us the lowdown by sending an email or voice memo to incoming at studio360.org. Coming up next... How Beyonce can help us understand the Bible, and vice versa. I don't want to lift up every Beyonce song as some kind of theological treatise, because that would be irresponsible. But I do want to say that I don't know on what grounds anyone has the right to say that there are not parts of Beyonce that can inform religious discourse. That's next, right here on Studio 360. It didn't seem like anything could be as big a deal as the wedding just before summer of Prince Harry and Meghan Markle. But then, here in America... Happily in love. Haters, please forgive me. I let my wife write the will. I pray my children outlive me. I give my daughter my custom dresses. She gonna be litty. Vintage pieces by the time she hit the city, yeah. Beyonce and Jay-Z released their excellent unannounced album, Everything is Love. It seemed so spontaneous, and it was so good, that it kind of hijacked American pop culture for a while. It was a surprise, but it was the kind of exceptional thing people now expect from Beyoncé. Like earlier this year, when her performance at the Coachella Festival dominated culture talk for days, maybe weeks. I went to Coachella, and this is where I had this, like, aha moment. Beyoncé was there. That's Keisha Mason, a native of San Francisco and, duh, a Beyoncé fan. It's an open field with thousands of people. And so you really have no choice but to not only be in community, but to congregate with one another, with people who you don't even know. And the only connection that you have is... You're all at this event to listen to a variety of music and connect. And it's just a happy feeling. And for me, that is church. That's bringing people together. Keisha, it turns out, just graduated from a seminary. And she'd been taking a course at the San Francisco Theological Seminary, a Presbyterian college just north of San Francisco. I am actually a student at American Baptist Seminary of the West. And we can cross-register across the schools. And that's how she discovered the class that fused two of her favorite things, Beyonce and the Bible. I saw the Beyonce in Hebrew Bible class and decided to take it because I thought it'd be interesting. Okay, so what's the verdict? Was this the kind of liberation? I've been listening to Beyonce since I was in late middle school, early high school. I'm the woman who's known for going to two Beyonce concerts in a week. Done it before, we'll do it again. My name is Yolanda Norton. I'm the assistant professor of Old Testament here at San Francisco Theological Seminary. Keisha. 
The way Professor Norton has the class set up, we study the Hebrew Bible scriptures. I want you to think about the ways in which oppression is formed in these texts. And we parallel that with the music of Beyonce as a contemporary artist. How are women in particular the recipients of particular kinds of oppression? Why Beyonce? For at least a decade, I've been having conversations with um, young women that I mentor about the particular realities that Black women face. And what has resonated with them is using this entertainer who they follow, they know her music, she represents a voice for Black women in this generation. And so I thought, oh, well, this is interesting. We take this figure who people don't often talk about within a religious or Christian context. And let's think about the kinds of issues that she has faced as a person in the public light and as a performer, an artist. And let's think about how they represent some pieces of Black female identity. In today's health report, what Beyonce eats is becoming a hot topic. We may never know exactly what caused that elevator brawl between Jay-Z and Solange Knowles. Even though a lot of people applaud her for pushing this social agenda, there's been a number of people that have criticized her, saying that by her doing these videos, it, it makes it look like that she is not supporting police lives and she's only supporting black lives. Quite honestly, I think that this is the kind of couple that will stay together because it's good for business and because they don't want to disappoint us and because, you know, they don't want to disappoint, I guess, you know, our father who art in heaven. Tina Lawson took the Instagram to confess she was worried B's Coachella show might confuse white folks in the audience. After all, the performance was B at her peak blackness. It now on Saturday, June 16th, Jay-Z and Beyonce, the Carters, just dropped an album out of nowhere. We you know, it might be a harsh criticism, but this almost sounds like a Beyonce album featuring Jay-Z. So the syllabus is designed in units. So there are four units over the course of the class, and each unit includes ethical reading, theological ethics readings, followed up by the second week of class where we do a series of Beyonce songs that run the course of her career. And then the third week we read text. And so the idea is that the songs help narrate some of the issues that we've discussed in the ethical theory. And that when we look at all of these things together, they put in front of the class some real issues that black women face. And we use that as a tool to help discuss how to read text differently. So I think that piece is there. I think my complication with it arrived with the Jay-Z song at the end and tying... The Sandcastles. After Sandcastles. Okay. Or was that Sandcastles? In the unit we're in now, we're looking at the role of women in liberation movements. And so we're using the whole of the Lemonade album as a part of like the personal healing and the intertwining of the personal issues that black women face with his political movements that we are a part of. That part really stuck out to me when she said, my torture became my remedy. And it made me think about Earlier when she said, am I talking about your father or am I talking about your husband? Am I talking about your husband or your father? I was like, or are we talking about God? 
And then that made me think about the clip of the woman saying, when you're back against the wall and the wall's against your back. And your wall against your back. Who you call? Who you call? But we all knew who we were talking about. You gotta call Jesus. You gotta call him. You gotta call him because you ain't got no other hope. So just, I think to me, the moment of my torture became my remedy wasn't a clear Jay-Z reference. I want to suggest like that part of what the tension that we see in the album is that people are trying to separate the personal and the prophetic. And there is no clear distinction between the concepts of the personal and the prophetic, right? Like in order for something to be prophetic, it has to be intimate and felt. Because we're in this liberation unit, when we talk about this next week in the context of the Hebrew Bible, we'll talk about the role of women in the Exodus narrative. Our class is very much about the experiences of black women. I do not share that experience. Uh, my name is Sam Lundquist. I'm 33 years old, and I'm a second-year Master's of Divinity student here at San Francisco Theological Seminary, and I live in San Francisco. I think the most eye-opening thing for me has been the history lesson that has gone on alongside this class. I mean, truly, the voices, the bodies, the experience, the ideas of black women have been pushed down and down. It's just not something I I deeply knew. And to watch how that's happened in scripture as well. And we like to think that we've progressed. But even in looking at Beyonce's career, when she releases certain singles and there's outrage, or she dresses a certain way and there's outrage, or she performs a certain song a certain way and there's outrage, why does there have to be outrage? You may have heard a San Francisco church, Grace Cathedral, held what was called a Beyonce Mass. And even with this Beyonce Mass, there was a lot of outrage. The Bible teaches Christians to be set apart from the world, not to blend in. So the Beyonce Mass was born out of a worship service that I did with my students here at San Francisco Theological Seminary thinking about how is it that we give voice and space to black women in worship. It became this 900-plus person event. We used her songs alongside stories from the Hebrew Bible and stories of black women in America to create that space. Some might argue, oh, come on, this is just entertainment, right? Well, yes, but the question is, do secular entertainment and unbiblical themes belong in a place of Christian worship where the focus should be... I, too, was one of those people who felt like, is it possible to fuse contemporary music with sacred text? So I don't want to lift up every Beyonce song as some kind of theological treatise, because that would be irresponsible. But I do want to say that I don't know on what grounds anyone has the right to say that they're not parts of Beyonce that can inform religious discourse. We created a space where this voice that has been pushed down and down and down got pushed way up. And I think it's a beautiful thing. We must create spaces for that. In 
Lemonade, Beyonce is using two different norms that exist in tension, right? The visual versus the audio. So I want you to look at the text in these biblical narratives and see how the women are using different forms of communication to bring about liberation. They don't love you like I love you. Slow down. They don't love you like I love you. Back up. They don't love you like I love you. Step down. They don't love you like I love you. When you go to work or when you go to school, you have to wear certain hats. But there are two things that I cannot check at the door. My color and the fact that I'm a woman. Those are two things that I that I cannot check. As women of color, we have so much against us. And if being persons of faith is the way that we wrestle with those things that undermine us or keep us oppressed, I think we should have that opportunity to do that as authentically as we can. That piece was produced by Sonia Paul and mixed by Tommy Bazzari. And that's it for this week's show. Studio 360 is a production of PRI, Public Radio International, in association with Slate. These are extraordinary institutions with incredible collections, amazing facilities. Our executive producer is Jocelyn Gonzalez. Our senior editor is Andrew Adam Newman. Our show this week was mixed by Whitney Jones. Our producers are Evan Chung, Lauren Hansen, Sam Kim, Zoe Saunders, Tommy Bazarian. Our production assistant is Morgan Flannery. And I'm Kurt Anderson. Thanks very much for listening. PRI, Public Radio International. Next time on Studio 360. We don't want children to get hurt. Playground equipment is safer than ever. But on the other hand, I think now we've gone too far and children aren't getting hurt, but they're also not being challenged and then they don't want to go play. How lawyers and bureaucrats ruin fun. Next time on Studio 360.